today's guest, compensation expert Virgil Reingard, founder and CEO of Figures. Virgil and I talked about HR, business partnering for a tech organization and how the role can develop over time at different company stages, compensation, why he founded Figures because he was an engineer turned into an HR professional, which is a very interesting combination, which led ultimately to founding his own company, Figures. It's a benchmarking software, compensation software, that brings transparency into pay. We also talked a lot about situations when compensation can really help or be a blocker, how a philosophy in compensation could look like and many other topics that are really interesting for everyone who is a manager. So let's directly dive into it and have fun. Then you can build trust and then you can spend less time communicating and more time just getting shit done. Then I went home and, and thought about this sentence. We basically put it on the table. Hiring takes time. People are trained. How to objectively judge certain situations. It's very, 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 very hard to change things. That was the learning. Entrepreneurs with empathy. On the people side. Hi, Virgil. Nice to meet you. And please introduce yourself to us. Hello, Thomas. Very nice to meet you indeed. So I guess I'm Virgil, right? Um, so where do you want to start? You want to start from where I'm from originally, right? Why did I study? Yeah, why not? Tell us a bit more about your, your, your early, early times. <laughs> yeah, so I have, I have a very weird background, Thomas, right? So I hope uh, you won't think I'm too crazy, but I actually have a bachelor of, in computer science, right? So early on, I always loved computer science. I actually did a bachelor in computer science. But then I was like, I love uh, coding. I love developing stuff and so on, but I hate the life, what I think would be the life of a developer, right? Being a very solitary life in front of my computer. So I'm, I need to do something else, right? So, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went out to do a master's degree in business, right? Generalist. And then someone, as I was completely lost, was like, I think you should do HR. I'm like, you know what? I'll do HR. Like I was so lost that someone going to me and being like, you know, you should do HR, Virgil. I'm like, okay, then I'll do HR. I don't know what to do, so I'll do HR. And I jumped into a master's degree in human resources. We didn't make much sense back okay, then. Okay, so first you studied computer science and then yep. you jumped to HR studying HR. Yeah, exactly. I ended up having a master's degree in human resources towards the end. But like really random, doesn't make any sense, but turns out it was a... It was a wise move, Thomas. Yeah, I'm not, interesting uh, I made interesting mix, yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And so early on after my studies, I I worked into very technical aspect of HR, right? It makes sense. I started as a compensation analyst, right? Which is going to make sense to given what I do today. Then I did a HRIS project implementation at a large enterprise where I implemented the ATS, uh, performance management system, like yeah, succession plan systems and stuff like that, right? At a large scale in a 30,000 employees uh, company. Then I spent two years in Australia uh, for the same company, starting to do human, like generalist human resources, because I was like, if I did a degree in human resources, I need to do some proper human resources, like hiring people, managing people, drafting out policies and stuff like that. So I tried that and I did that in Australia. And coming back for Australia, I'm like, okay, I actually like the job. Like I actually like being a human resource person, right? Generalist uh, HR type of person. But I want to do it in something that resonates with me, which was tech, 
Right, so I go back. I, I combined my old love of for tech and being HR for a tech company. So I actually joined Criteo at the beginning to be an HR business partner for uh, some of the tech team over there. And actually, which was interesting, is my background then really helped me out, right? Because I think as an HR person, one of the toughest, one of the most important thing to nail, one of the toughest thing to nail as well is getting credibility from the business, right? Yes. And as an HR business partner, my main business leader I was supporting as a support function was the CTO. And I was working every day with like engineers, data analysts, uh, engineering managers, and so on. And I think my ability to know their, a bit of what, what they're doing, what you know, what it is to develop, what it is to write code, what is the life of the, like of a developer, enabled me to have like quite a lot of credibility back then with this population. And it, it kind of helped me making this, this, this role of success. I want to stop here shortly because this is a very crucial point, I think, in your career. I've worked with business or with companies where business partnering was done not so good and where it did not exist at all. And also with companies where business partnering was really done well. And I think what you say is that you can really resonate, resonate with the business unit and understand the managers, the people, how they tick and just how, how, how to vibe with them also, but also delivering, I would say, solutions. That's, yep. that's key. Could you tell us what a business partner back then did? It's a good question. So I think we're trying to help facilitate everything that was HR related. So it was no talent acquisition, it was post-talent acquisition, it was starting from onboarding in the company to performance management, like performance improvement, performance management processes, uh, supporting learning and development, uh, supporting managers uh, grow into their role, grow into their management practices, supporting employees with any issues they had. So I think it was everything after talent acquisition after the person was hired to termination, right? And I think this was what business partnering was about. And to your point, I think the two things reflecting back on my role then, the two things that was the most important is having credibility and buying from the, from the business, right? I think it's understanding the business, understanding the role people have, understanding what their day-to-day -day look like, right? And whether it's a developer, whether it's a salesperson, if you're working with salespersons, understanding what the life of a sales is, what is doing outbound, what is doing meetings, what does the qualified And you were doing it with the tech unit, right? What I saw on LinkedIn. Yep. How yep. do you understand a tech unit? What, what does it specifically mean? Yeah, so, it, so actually you need to understand the life of, so I was mainly, early on it was mainly with developers, right? And in fact, I had also the infrastructure teams, so people managing data centers and so on. It, you know what? It just means being like, hey, let me, just tell me what your normal day looks like. Invite me to your day-to-day -day business meetings with your team and so on. So actually it was, it was pretty interesting because back then I was like, hey, invite me to your daily stand-ups. Invite me to your business, to your retrospective and so on. And they were like, wow, no one, no one usually does that, right? And they are very happy of someone coming in and trying to understand their world. I think this is the first part. It's like, you need to show, I think to do good business partnering from an HR perspective, is showing you want to understand and you can understand their world, their day-to-day, what their work is about, right? So it was getting down and understanding what is the sprint planning, what is agile methodology, what is the retrospective, and just understanding how they work with the product team, understanding how they handle bugs, and stuff like that was, was something that was necessary to build understanding and build trust, I think, with the, with the team, right? Yes, and these methodologies, they are also were just created that people can work to, together in a certain way, right? <laughs> Exactly. Especially for engineers, I think you have very 
edgy personalities sometimes um, compared to maybe a non-engineer because they, ver they think very differently and then just making sure that they also collaborate in a certain way. Um, I think it's crucial. There's also, I think, one um, saying that code is written in the way or architectures are designed in a way how the engineering teams communicate with each other. Do you, did you also see similarities to that or, or haven't you been in-depth involved? So I think you, you, you understand, I think there's some similarity, yes, I'm not sure how, how deep they will go, but, uh, but I think to your point, and one point you man just mentioned that really resonates with me, is like understanding how they communicate and how they like to communicate was super important, right? So one thing I learned back then is like, you can't shoot out email announcement from an HR perspective with all of the population in the same way with all type of population. Tech people love to have details, love to, uh, this is where I learned to have like a TLD, TLDR at the beginning of emails, you know, like too long didn't read. So every email we were sending out like TLDR, two sentences about what the email was about and full context below. And they loved it. Engineers loved it, right? So this was one example of getting to understand how they work, how they communicate and adapting your way to communicate to make sense for you. And once again, to build trust from them and maximize your efficiency as an HR person. And how many headcounts did you serve or partner with um, as a business partner? So as a business partner early on, I was, I think, 200, 250 employees or something like that between France and the US. But at the end of my time there, as an HR director, I had 800 employees, I think, between mm. product engineering and research. We had quite a few researchers between France and the US. It was a, yeah, 800 FT, I think. So when should a company start hiring an HR business partner? It's a damn good question, right? Because I think uh, so. The first HR person is very early, earlier than what most companies do, right? I think we should agree on that. And I think a business partner is when the HR main HR person can't do good like proximity HR with people. And interesting because I could have looked at the numbers what we have in, in figures, right? But I, I would think it's a, it's around. 100 employees or so is when you're like, I can't, I can't do my standard HR director, HR manager role and keep a close eye and spending time with managers, spending time with employees. So I need to start having delegating some of that to someone, right? I agree. And usually I also see that this role, HR business partner at a hundred headcount organization is called head of HR or head of people. And then they're doing everything. But if you compare it to a more bigger environment then it's ex exactly similar things what an hr business partner would do <laughs> yep i agree and i think the standard organization as the hr team grows is to have hr business partner for like tech team hr business partner for the yeah. sales or non-tech and i think it's a good way to once again build specialization and build trust right having hr business partner who have time to focus on one part of the business and enable them to understand that part of business and build trust and so on Okay, let's jump a bit with topics. You are a compensation expert. You run a very successful compensation company. What touch points should an HR business partner have with compensation? Well, I think, you know, there's plenty of it. So depending on the, depending on the way the company is set up, it starts at offer stage, right? How most company works, either the HR main HR person is also doing the hiring or they're delegating that to talent acquisition and often and I like this way of doing talent acquisition, those hiring, but they ask HR or HR business partner for what should a good offer look like, right? And not that I advocate for talent acquisition, not having the power to generate offers, right? Because it's, it's more that I think when you want to 
standard fair compensation, having two persons, one that is in contact with a candidate, one that is more biased and has more incentive to get people in, and therefore more incentive to give whatever is needed to close the candidate, it's good to have that good balance in power with like the HR, main HR person is going to be like, I know you want to close that candidate. And I know what you want to send out to be sure to close the candidate, but I have internal fairness to manage. I can't have people coming in 10, 15, 20% above everyone else of the same role. So I think HR is a, is a key, it's accountable for fairness within the company. So I think the first touch point is clearly at, at hiring time, right? It's like sending out that, that offer, a fair offer to candidate in conjunction with talent acquisition. In case you didn't subscribe to the show and you like it, please subscribe. I would really appreciate it. I also think that very practically they need to be involved. I would even go a bit um, further and say they should be involved in the whole headcom planning process and in the approval process. Not that they need to approve an offer or so, but that they are consult with the managers to say what are the right bands for the right um, levels for the right region. And this is what you are an expert in. Yeah. So I think I, yeah. You're no, I agree with you. Well, for and, so. Uh, Go for it. Yes, and also just designing the current and future org to say, okay, how, how could a development of the organization for the tech org, for instance, or sales org look like depending on the overall strategy, depending on the overall um, goals we have, and then starting a bit with back, backwards planning and saying, okay, um, may, maybe somewhere we can also just hire internally, But then we also need to backfill a position and not hire for a new position, but hire for a new position internally and backfill an existing position. And having also this, this conversations, I would say, would really help because sometimes managers don't have the, the space to think about this or also maybe not, not the knowledge or creativity. Um, yeah, this is just what I wanted to add because no, I, I think that's also super important. I think it's a very good point. And I think uh, HR being more responsible or having a broader view on where talents can sit and moving people around and enforcing internal mobility versus hiring, 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 hiring yeah. or developing talent versus once again looking for competencies externally that are available internally is a good point. But I think when it comes to workforce planning, in most companies, I think, and headcount and workforce planning, a lot of power also, sadly, and I think this is changing, is also on the CFO, right? It's a very budget-heavy type of process rather than, and HR sometimes is not involved or barely involved or barely consulted into whatever mm. headcount needs to be open, whatever headcount needs to happen, when, and so on. And what role does finance play um, in the whole compensation topic or designing compensation? So ideally, there should be the stakeholder, I think, of the budget, right? What should be a realistic salary mass? What should be the realistic budget for salary increase given the company's performance and so on? And it should stop there, but I think it varies from company to company, right? I hope I think less and less companies where, for example, the HR is reporting to the, the main HR person to the CFO, right? Which I think is a is a good thing. Uh, but I think it should stop there. They should be the gatekeepers to the budget and not necessarily how the budget is being spent, right? So yes. they should work with HR into what should be a good compensation review budget. HR should come up with this is what the market is doing. I've had a look at our current headcount and salary mass and this is areas where I think we need to do adjustment. This is areas where I think we need to drive a bit performance and this is a budget I think I, I need and then finance being like, well, let's discuss what budget you can have. I think this is a healthy, a super healthy discussion. Right? It doesn't have to be a fight. Sometimes it's a fight, it's perceived CFO versus HR, right? But it can be a very healthy and constructive decision, one coming from a very 
PNL, Profit and Losses, Company Results and Revenue Angle, and the other coming from Fairness, Market Related Adjustments, Performance Recognition, and coming to the conclusion of a shared budget. And then HR should be kind of free on how to allocate the best along with managers and so on. I agree. So maybe let's move further and shortly summarize. I, I try it um, on, on what we discussed because I think a lot of value was just discussed here. Um, so I, I like your perspective. So a company or a founder should look into hiring the first business partner at around 100 headcounts. It can be either called a HR business partner, is then more a big, from a bigger environment or a head of HR. They should focus on um, budgeting, planning, onboarding, designing performance management reviews, the first compensation structures, um, building the infrastructure what a manager needs to manage certain processes, but also lead people and organization and, and the organization further in um, planning of boarding. So that should be the role. I think that's a, that's a pretty good uh, overview. I mean, we can get a bit more in detail, but I love the employee life cycle yeah. view. But there's also some transversal stuff, of course, in terms of like legal constraints and uh, ensuring exactly. you have good that's compliance. And, stuff yeah, like that. that's true, true. and like holding culture and values, ensuring the cultural. So I, li I like having the view of a, 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 like an employee life cycle from hiring or workforce planning, as you were mentioning, to termination and departure and having some transversal topic on like legal and compliance, employee culture and values and so on like that. But I think overall, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty damn good summary. Yes, and I think what also is additionally important, like you said, with legal, they should not maybe do it by themselves, but really be involved closely because they're not maybe lawyers um, or legal experts. They should also not do talent acquisition by themselves at that size. So they should closely partner with talent acquisition and then being a good sparing partner, but not doing it by themselves. I never saw it really being done at an excellent level. <laughs> I agree. I think it's a specialist type of role, right? So with a very specialist type of role, it's very tough for one single person to excel at all area of a role. This is why specialists mm. emerge. Yes. And then you jumped at some point from um, big corporate criteria to a startup, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, actually, I was pretty happy with criteria. I love my role. I love the culture. I still love the company to this day. But two things, right? One thing is, and I think it's because it comes to the nature of HR in a way. So it was a 3,000 employees company, a, a, a cool, very cool, fast-growing tech company, but yet... At 3,000 employees, they become some inertia, right? Pushing new processes, pushing new tools, pushing innovation in HR becomes complex. And I think because the size of the company, because there's legal red tape and processes all everywhere. And because you know what? I'll say, I'll say this, I think because HR, the nature of HR, and maybe that's a bit controversial, right? At the beginning is to protect the company from any legal and compliance risk, right? So I think by, by, by nature, HR is a more risk-averse function trying to... And it's not a very innovative function by design, right? I think we're seeing more and more innovation and we're seeing more and more innovation in the field. But if you think of HR, the role of HR is to preserve the company's best interest in terms of legal compliance and so on. And so I think innovation at some point in a larger large-scale company becomes harm. So I was very attracted into what I was seeing in the possibility of being going to a younger uh, company, a young startup, to start fresh and having the full control over what could be implemented. And back then, I, I was seeing stuff such as transparent salaries. I was seeing stuff such as innovative, like HR processes. I was seeing a startup being very innovative in terms of like parental leave, well-being. And that was attractive to me. And then the second point was, 
going to jump to be HR director or VP of people operations at a younger stage startup allowed me to be an executive of the company and to be involved into the decision of strategical expansion, pricing, organization to do more than HR, right? To be exposed to some like company, like a fundraising, uh, revenue stuff that I think would I wanted to see as a as an individual. So both things, innovation in HR, being more of an executive, drove me to to join a post-series A startup Comet. I think when it was in 2018. And uh, it was a blast. It was a huge blast. And I recommend that to every HR professional. Right? I think it's tough, but I think it's a blast to be in this environment being like, okay, now you can do whatever you want. There's nothing in place. Just go and do it. Yes, so you made the jump basically by yourself from this bigger corporate into this early stage environment. And yep. at some point you had the idea for figures. How did that came up? Pretty pretty easy, right? There's two two main things that drove me to create figure. Right? The first one was when I went out well, so first one was interesting life of an HR uh, or VP people that many uh, people of fully listening will, will remember. So I think I accepted an offer something along the line of ten tenth of May, right? And like I was due to start in August, late August, and then my CEO calls me two weeks after, say, hey, um, so we just closed our Series A funding, and during an all-hands meeting, I told everyone that they have, everyone will get salary increases on 1st of July. <laughs> so he calls me and says, you know what, maybe I messed up, I know you're starting in August, but uh, wouldn't you mind working on a salary grid and a salary method uh, before you arrive, right? And I was like, okay. So back then, I didn't realize this was one of the first exposure to like some of the startup life of having your CEO drop that bomb on you being like, I promised everyone there'll be salary increase in 1st of July, yet you're starting in the company two months later, right? So I started working on, this, on, on the salary model to make that happen. And and turns out, I was like, okay, so what's the market data? So help me define a, a, a good compensation policy, right? How should I pay our engineers? How should I pay our data team? How should I pay our sales team? Give me good market data. And there was nothing, nothing for startups in France at the time to help me define my salary policy. And I was used for 10 years to work with other providers that would provide me with market data as a large scale provider or some of the large consultancy firms and so on, right? And there was nothing. So for two years, it was a constant battle. And whenever I was discussing with my HR peers, everyone was like, yep, it's such a pain to have no market data, right? And so I was like, October 2020, I was like, okay, I, I can't, I, I feel an urge to try to fix this, right? And I went out and reached out to many, in fact, prior to that, six months prior to that, I reached out to many HR peers. I was like, are you tired of this? What about I moved to part-time in my role? So I worked, I started working, taking one day off per week in my previous role of VP of people. And on, on this day, I was working on this side project that would then become figures of like creating the first compensation benchmark for startups in France. And this, I just told companies, give me your employee compensation data. I'll aggregate it. I'll give you back a Google Sheet. Aggregate a Google Sheet with compensation information. And this was October 2020. The first version of figures is 15 companies agreeing to share compensation information with me. First benchmark is created. Figures created October 2020. But it's just a Google Sheet, right? It's a Google Sheet companies were paying to get access to. Well, so you really... Um solved it with an ad hoc problem you had to solve and then you said okay let's make a business out of it exactly and, and at the beginning i was like okay maybe it's a small side project but it took off right after i published the first version i had 10 more companies joining the next the following months 10 more companies the following months and in fact i sold the google sheet to 50 or 55 companies to begin with but then 
And that leads me to the second point, right? Is the other pain point I had that this was throughout my entire HR career is the lack of tooling when it comes to compensation. I've managed compensation in Excel spreadsheets all my life, right? One, one crazy thing. So when we're at Criteo, we're running compensation reviews, right? We're managers, so deciding on who we should get what increase. And this was done out of 700 Excel files. One Excel file per manager that was sent to each manager, password protected with the list of her or his direct report in there. The manager will be like, okay, this is a salary increase. I recommend for each of my direct reports. Send back the Excel file by email to us as HR professional. And someone had to consolidate 700 Excel files to make a compensation review work. That was madness. That was my, I was like, this is back then, it was like, this is 2016, 2017, and we don't have a tool to manage that. We have to run it with 700 Excel files that took literally one person, one month or two months to, to run. Pure madness. So this is when, when I was early on in figure, I was like, it can't be just a Google sheet based business. I want to make a product out of it. Luckily enough, I had a coworker of mine, my previous company that was the best developer I ever worked with. And I've worked with a, quite a ton of developers. He was being, trying to get poached by the entire earth wanted to have him as a CTO. He, he chose luckily to join figures, build a product out of it two years ago. And nearly to this day was the first version of, uh, of figure was two years ago. And then started really taking off, not to the Google Sheet, but the product, right? A, a proper online application. I have two questions. One, can you maybe shortly explain in a, a pitch like you as the CEO, what is figures mm -hmm. and what is this doing? And secondly, then back then going into the developer or computer science degree, how does it help you build it? This is what I would like to dive into. What would you like to do first? Um, so the, the pitch for figures, because then the second part will make sense. Pitch of figures is quite simple. So we plug in to a HR system from some of our client companies. And we now have like 1,200 client companies to retrieve anonymized compensation information. We aggregate this information and there's two things we do. One, we give access to each of our client companies, access to market data. So how much is a senior product manager earning in Berlin? How much is a junior data scientist or a CFO earning in Munich? All filterable. So it says how much is a CFO in a SaaS company, Series B earning? Right, we have those answers. And the second thing is we analyze the client's company's information and say, hey, we're going to analyze each of your team and in fact, each of your persons in the company and we're going to tell them how their position compares to the market. Did you know that your sales team overall is 10% below the market? Did you know that your dev team was paid around the 80th percentile? So we run that kind of analysis for the company, saving them time because this is the type of analysis I had to run in Excel during my life as an HR, I had to spend days creating that in Excel while doing that in the product. And so to your point, how did that help is I think having a computer science background helped me always think of HR processes as, as, as like very small process. And I always had like an automation idea in mind and always worked into some processes and thinking like, oh, I think I could see a tool doing that. I could see a tool doing that and so on. So I was doing HR, but often, especially when it came to processes like compensation review with a very developer mindset of structure, processes, and how could the tool improve some of that stuff, right? So I think it gave me a unique mindset. And in fact, back then in Criteo, we worked on a very innovative, with a data scientist there, we worked on a quite innovative salary recommendation model based on compensation reviews, right? Is one thing we did. Um, and I worked on him to implement that. I also ran some analysis on one thing that was interesting on um, 
our interview performance scores predictive of future performance. So having that scientific background helped me deep dive into very data and process and tool-oriented thing, right? So for example, on the second part, second thing I mentioned, back then in Criteo, we tried to see two candidates that do well in interviews actually do well when we hire them, right? So super interesting study. So we had to look at interview scores. And back then at Criteo, we were using the Google scale of interview rating that was between one and five. So each interview was graded on a scale from 1.0 to 5.0, right? And so whenever all of the candidates that we hired had like three to four or five interview score ratings, right? And we took that scores. And then we looked at people we hired two or three years ago and we looked at their performance review ratings within Criteo. And we're like, do people that interview well are the ones that actually perform well? And what's the, and, what's the outcome? So super interesting. Overall, no correlation. <laughs> interesting, right? Overall, the guys that ace the interview or girls that ace the interview are not necessarily the ones that perform well, save for the very senior folks. So where we saw a correlation is on quite senior roles, those that interviewed very well were actually uh, quite good when after when we looked at their performance. But over, other than that, junior roles, intermediate roles, and so on, no correlations. People that interviewed the best were not necessarily the best performers. And senior, you mean a senior individual contributor or a senior manager, for instance? Yeah, it was senior individual contributors. Very good question. Manager, we didn't see any correlation. So it was like staff engineers one. And it, it makes kind of sense, right? Because staff engineers are the ones responsible for designing large, large scale technical architectures and so on. And this is what you discussed about in interviews, like, okay, how would you design that? What's your experience in designing larger scale architectures and so on? Actually, so what they do in the interview correlates more to their day-to-day -day job. This is our conclusion from that data. Rather than like young engineers, when you interview them, say, oh, what do you like? How do you like to work and so on? Does it translate to them actually producing code or reviewing codes of other? Not that much, right? So it was pretty interesting to have that study being done. You um, know what is also super interesting? I, I interviewed a lot of recruiters or recruiting leaders from Meta, Google, and all these big tech companies who are sophisticated in that. And I always ask the question, tell me about a time where you need to resolve a certain bottleneck for a situation. Let's say increase the quality of hire at scale or um, meet a recruitment demand you don't have the resources for. Basic question for a leader that they need to resolve. And patterns I see from leaders, leaders who are from the big tech, sophisticated companies in terms of hiring versus the um, smaller companies. The answer of a serious A to C leader is, yeah, hire an RPO, hire more recruiters, and then make sure we have enough resources. The answer of a more sophisticated, um, or of a leader in a more sophisticated and complex environment is, okay, we needed to understand why did certain interviewers pass certain candidates? What is the storyline behind it? How can we prep candidates for the specific interview process? How can we make sure that the interviewers are calibrated across the process? And how can we make sure that all the questions are asked are also um, leading to a certain outcome we want to see and also making sure that the candidates are aware of that? Yeah. And I was like, interesting, that's such a big difference on how they answer and both is right for certain circumstances and environments, 
But what you say with staff engineers, senior folks, this makes sense because you also have way more data points. You can look for way more granularity and specific problems you want to have resolved. Um, and they also can look way more back into the answers are usually coming then from this is what I did there, this is what I did there. But if you ask this a mid-level or junior person, what should they answer? They don't have experience, right? Exactly. Exactly. So it kind of makes sense, right? Afterwards, after we look at the number, it was a bit depressing because you're like, okay, does it mean that interview scores doesn't mean anything, right? Which is which is not true because there's a, 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 a bias, a fault with this disease that we only look at the one that we hired, right? Uh, to do a full study on the efficiency of hiring, you will need to pass interviews for like 1,000 people, hire all of them, and see how they perform on the role, right? So we, there's a survivor bias to our thing is that we only look at the score of those who actually passed the test, right? We, it, the conclusion is not interviewing doesn't mean anything, but the conclusion and one of the conclusions is like interview scores doesn't really necessarily mean that the candidates are going to be stellar performers in their role, because I think it goes back to how tough hiring is and recruiting is, right? Let's talk a bit about compensation. How do you design a compensation philosophy? Oh, it's a, it's a good one. So actually, first, uh, everyone needs to define it. Right? One of the biggest mistakes is people starting to hire without asking themselves who they want to be as an employer and how it's tied to, 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 to compensation. Right? I think compensation philosophy is part to your for employer value proposition. Right? It's who you want to be as an employer. Do you want an employer that promises good training of people? Do you might provide them a good well-being uh, in terms of good support in terms of well-being and in terms of like leaves and parental stuff and so on? So it's, it's something that's often overlooked. It's like who you want to be as an employer. And this will drive your compensation po policy policy and philosophy. The big, one of the biggest questions is for where do you want to be on the market? And you can do that for like cash compensation, equity, and benefits, right? It's who do we want to be? Do we want to be an employer that pays like really high on the market because we want to attract some of the top talents and we want to pay position ourselves very high on the market, but we want a lot of that compensation to be variable pay because we believe into the power of attracting high performers and incentivizing them with high variable pay. However, in terms of equity, we believe that only the managers at a certain level should have equity. We don't believe in equity for everyone. And when it comes to benefits, uh, we are not going to do much because we don't think it attracts the type of talent. Okay, that's one viable compensation policy. Another company will be like, you know what, we might pay at the 40th percentile for some of those roles. However, we want to do, do equity for everyone because we think it's going to send a strong message that everyone is part of the journey, everyone is a potential stakeholder. And in terms of benefits, we really want to focus on learning. So we're going to have a crazy learning type of budget. We're going to offer mentoring and coaching for everyone. Those are two very different like compensation and benefits and policies that any company can like have, but are different because it, it needs to be true for the founding team, right? I think it comes from the founders themselves. It comes from who you want to be as an employee, as a company, and it needs to come from the founders. And those are the high level stuff. If you zoom in on the salaries, then compensation policy and philosophy should also encompass things such as remote hiring. How do we want to pay people working remotely? We want to pay them the same as Berlin-based salary, or we want to pay them local rates. So does it mean that if we start hiring in India, we pay them Indian rates? Is that fair? Or do we want to pay them Germany rates? Is that fair? 
Mm. Uh, so, you know, all those type of questions are like once you start digging a little bit more. In also, the question of fairness, that's maybe getting a bit philosophical, but yep. can you pay fair? Super good question. I, I think the topic of everyone claiming that the fair thing to do is X is, is, is wrong, right? I think fair is super non-objective and super subjective, right? So let's use that topic of remote pay, right? And this is the example I've, I would use to say, is that fair to pay Indian people Indian rates when they're doing the same way, a role than someone in Germany? Potentially it's not fair because they're doing the same role and you should be rewarding the impact. But then is it fair to pay them German salaries and then to have to offer them a spending power way higher than whatever people are doing in Germany? So giving them the ability to have three, four times the spending power of a German employee. So if you look at salary, maybe it's not equivalent. If you look at spending power, also potentially it's a different discussion. So there's no fair thing to do. There's like, it's it's a very relative perception. And once again, I think there's no ultimate answer and like what's a fair compensation is. I think, however, there's some over underarching principle that fair compensation is to be as objective as possible. But then I don't think there's an ultimate fair definition when it comes to compensation and with many other things. I also agree. Um, and I have this discussion seen all the time where people want to have a certain um, package or a certain f um, compensation structure, but the company sees this differently or the manager sees it differently. The HR business partner sees it differently. Finance sees it differently. What is fair then? Yeah. So I think that's also something, as you said, you need to agree to something or to some kind of a philosophy. Yep. And um, this should all be considered in that. And then people either buy into it or not. What, what do you think are the challenges in designing a compensation structure? Um, I think, first of all, so I, I think, first of all, it's like, it's tough sometimes to get down and answer that question because you, you, you always feel like you have other stuff to do when you're in a rush and you want to hire and say hire and so on. So I think it's tough to take the time to be like, what do you want to do when it comes to remote pay? How do you want to pay your team? Should you pay at the median of the market for all roles, but potentially the tech team should be paid higher because you really think you want to be much more attractive for tech talent, so you should pay the tech team as a 17th percentile. So there's lots of subtleties that uh, are not necessarily easy, but we can that done. Some of the things that hard is that that's high impact choices. Meaning once you decide to pay someone a hundred K, if you realize six months later on that, you know what, in fact, we've changed our philosophy and we should be paying lower on the market. Now with your new salary is 80 K, that doesn't work like that. So some of the decision you make around your compensation philosophy and some of the decision you make around compensation are decisions that are long lasting are tough to roll back, are tough to go back from, right? Because you can't just move around salaries up and down or especially down the way you want. And it has impact on multiple people, right? It has ripple effect. So if you start designing compensation philosophy and start implementing changes, it's tough to go back from those changes. One example, for example, one thing as part of the compensation philosophy is how transparent you should be. So if you start being transparent in all individual salaries, right? And then you will like, Two months later, okay, we're going to go back to that and we want to be non-transparent, not on the salary grid, not on the salaries. This is going to be a mess. And this is going to be complicated. So what I think is tough is that 
being relatively right from the get-go, being conscious that it's a work in progress, but not using that as an example to to go too fast, right? And I think you need to revisit your compensation philosophy as you grow, as your company changes, as your company changes stages, potentially funding, size, mm. but also being very conscious that any change of compensation philosophy is, is can have ripple effect and consequences. Yes. Also, what I, I agree and what I see sometimes what is really sad um, when I look into companies, they offer then maybe VSOP or ESOP to everybody. And also, I think the companies maybe don't even have the potential to become a unicorn or to become maybe the next big thing and go IPO. I think it is, if that is not the case, giving out VSOP or selling VSOP to everyone is maybe also sometimes a bit misleading because when you give shares to everyone in the company, it should be big. <laughs> Otherwise, nobody so, sees a lot from it, right? But I, I think there's two points, two super, uh, there's two super important points you mentioned, right? And I think it's it's it comes down to communication and honesty. But yeah. communication is the thing with equity, is up or vis up is like uh, and to be very honest, most people don't understand equity. Yes. Like I, I did an exercise, you know what? So two things two exercises, one I do regularly and one I did last week. One is I often be a part like a speaker at a class of people who want to transition in their career within the startup world and so on. So individual comp employees and candidates, right? And most of them are startup employees, right? So, and a lot of them have, have like ESOP or VSOP, right? And I always ask this question, gun to your head, are you sure that you understand what a stock option is? Right? Just what is a stock option? 90% don't raise their hands. Like only raise your hands if you're sure that you know what a stock option is. So 90% of people don't raise their hands. So first thing, people don't understand equity. And in fact, I've said this, 90%, 95% of ESOP and VSOP plan are not understood by employees. Most companies think that their ESOP and VSOP is clear, that people know what they have, that know what they can benefit, but they don't. Like, really, they don't. And in fact, yes, last week I did so with an event with like 30 or so HR professionals. You know, they're supposed to be doing about ESOP and VSOP. I did the same question, and less than half of them were sure that they knew what a stock option was. So I think the thing about equity is many people just don't understand equity. So many people overestimate the attracting power of equity or retention power. But to your point, a lot of people are using that. Not a lot of people. Some founders are using that to mislead candidates mm. by being like, okay, I offer you 60K, but offering you 30K in equity. So Exactly. And this should not happen. Exactly. And that's misleading. You're not offering 30K in equity when you're offering stock option or visa plan or something. Yes. You're not, you know, that's misleading. That's misleading as that dishonesty. So it's why being good in communication and being honest about what you have and what you can have is super important when it comes to equity. Yes. So how would you describe or define VSOP and ESOP um, short and simple? It's a, it's a super one. So first of all, Germany and VSOP is even more, it adds a complexity, a layer of complexity to some of the ESOP scheme. Well, maybe not, but uh, in Germany, it makes it even harder with the, like, like the VSOP thing versus ESOP. But I think you can go down to what the stock option is and to be like, okay, I'm offering you the right to buy a share at a, a, a nice price, especially if the company grows in value. That might become something valuable if we sell the company, if we go in IPO, which is very, very rare. So you shouldn't sell IPOs to most of your candidates as a realistic outcome. 
or potentially if we do secondary sales during a fundraising event or something like that where we allow investors to buy so a liquidation event right needs to happen yep. that you also get cash from it otherwise you don't get cash for it exactly in otherwise it's an illiquid thing you can't go and buy groceries with it you can't go and do much with it it's a potential promise on sharing some of the success future success of the companies if things go very well which at most stages of the company as a C stage It's very unlikely at a series A stage. It's still unlikely to have a positive outcome, but it's an option, a lottery ticket to potentially share some of the success if the company is as successful as we want it to be. That's, yes. that's I think, the main thing, right? But it's not something that you should use as, yeah, you should sacrifice 20K in your salary because no. we're offering you this great setup and this up. I, I don't... Or at least if you do... Yeah, right, you have to communicate super well and honestly about what it really represents. Yes, and I think also it depends on the company stage and on the profile you hire for. Because if you hire into a, a, a top management position that maybe need to turn around your company, the company doesn't have cash, then you can say, hey, yep. we, we compromise on giving you 10x more equity because the company currently is not likely to succeed. But with your yep. impact, it can. And then um, everybody is fine and you get rich. <laughs> yeah, if you're, if you're, exactly. If you're doing that with someone who fully understands the value of equity, And that's is taking a risk and like, okay, but as a general rule, don't overpromise the likelihood of it being worth something one day. Yes. And what's next for figures? What, what's your plan for the next years? Oof. Yeah. Yeah. It's a long time, Thomas. But uh, right now, so as I said, we're, we're mostly doing like compensation benchmarking. I think companies know what really salary is being paid on the market, what is proper market rates and analyzing how they're doing compared to that, right? But my, my vision, as I said previously, is that I used to do compensation in Google Sheet on my life, and we want to stop that from everything. I want to create the product I, will, I would have loved to use as an HR professional. So one of the first thing, next thing we're going to release is the is a feature to help companies create their own salary bands, position their employees within the salary band, share the salary bands internally, which is an interesting topic, to managers, potentially to employees, then potentially to candidates, because more and more transparencies on salary and salary bands is something that's coming up. And that's like one of the things we want to do. And then there's multiple other features coming next, which is managing compensation reviews. Once again, I manage the example of Criteo, managing compensation reviews with 800 spreadsheets. Absolute nightmare. We want to avoid that. We want to do it within figures. And basically, we want figures to become the platform in which every compensation decision is being made from headcount planning, as you discussed, from like sending out offers, from reviewing salaries, from benchmarking your salary bands compared to the rest of the market. And yeah, that's pretty exciting. I'm trying out the salary bands feature at the moment. We're about to roll out the beta, right? We have like 250 companies registered for the beta. I'm trying it out at the moment as an HR person, right? And I love it. I love it. So I'm so excited to roll it out to the rest of uh, the public because I think, yeah, it's going to think it's going to change the way some HR are approaching, like creating, updating, mm. sharing salary bands, which is a massive pain. Yes. And I also want to say something from a talent acquisition perspective, what I always try to um, tell my customers and also team members, please use your applicant tracking system in a way or set it up in a way that you can, after every call, document the salary expectation of each candidate you talk to in a way that you can then draw reports on 
base compensation, on target compensation, on variable compensation, whatever you want with a comment, let's say, um, that you also understand the storyline or rationale behind it somewhere later or from other people, by function, by job level, by region, by time you had the call and so on, because then you can also have your own data gathering machine because some companies make hundreds of interviews a month. Yeah, Why not using this data as well? But additionally, you also would need somebody like you to say, okay, but what, the, what, what, what is out there, what the other companies are also paying. And if you have, or if every company would have good data and is, let's say, in an ideal world, working with figures and sending you their regular data gathered, uh, data, data, the information they gathered through interviews, let's say, and then get back the results of everybody consolidated, this would be very helpful for everyone, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yes, it would be Thomas. And I think it's a very good call of, uh, I think you have a very good point of view of uh, extra data source that could be interesting to companies because indeed having a view of consolidated market data and comparing it with candidate expectation and offers, let me throw this off out there, right? Because I think it's, it ties to the talent acquisition one and comparing it as well with offers you generate and seeing those that are accepted, seeing those that are rejected. So comparing candidate expectation, offer data, and salaries information would be quite powerful, wouldn't it? Yes, would it as would. well? And, and also for retention, I would say, because sometimes what I also see, um, which is a hard problem to solve. There is somebody hired one year ago into a role, let's say an engineer, at 60,000. It was expensive for the company. Now the company is at a different growth stage, and suddenly you need to hire engineers for 90K. But you just promote, let's say, max 10% in a year. So you could go from 70K to 77K, but somebody hired into, into the company newly starts at 90K and is not maybe even doing a, let's call it, better job than you do. What, what should you do about that? <laughs> as a candidate or as an HR person? As a company, yeah. As a company. So actually, it's, it's interesting. Two points about that, right? There's there's reason, and we could talk for quite a while on why. So for, for, first of all, as a candidate, and it's been proven a sad thing, as an employee or candidate, the best way to overall, on average, you have you will benefit from salary increases twice as high by changing jobs rather than staying in the same company. Yes, so on average, agree. if you job hop, it's proven that on average, people that change salaries get increases that change jobs gets. Uh, increases that are twice higher than those that remain in the same company. And there's plenty of reasons for that um, because uh, you're always more likely to have a company thinking your your higherly position on a seniority level than your, what you currently are or because it's a similar thing that mobile phones uh, subscription, right? There's always mobile carriers willing to say, hey, if you jump to us and subscribe for a one-year contract, we're going to give you that iPhone for like 150 euros. So there's always more budget to attract Mm. clients and even in sales there's always more budget to attract clients than to retain clients mm. same thing in, in in hr there's always more budget to attract new talent than to retain talent sadly and also some mechanism around there's a lot more budget when it comes to yeah hiring and a lot more flexibility and you know that right being uh, having been in talent acquisition for so many years it's there's always more flexibility when you hire someone to be like should we offer 60 or maybe 65 okay let's go for 65 right but when you're in a company at compensation review time, being like, it's not the same, right? Budgets are super well controlled, right? You're not like, oh, maybe we can increase to 60 or 65. No, no, no. 
there's like a five percent budget for the whole company every yes. euro count and if you move from one from from 55 to 65 instead from 55 to 60 that 5k difference you're gonna have to take it from someone else right so mm. budget is a much more tricky tougher to manage when you're doing compensation reviews than hiring so companies should be realize this issue and not let it happen and come back to some of the points we discussed earlier on is better offer management taking internal fairness into account when managing offers and so on but also there's a very sadly natural phenomenon around that that i don't think will stop soon i agree and i think there is one tip what i could see um working out well in the past is for these let's say inequalities in salaries make sure that you regularly check data what is happening on the market with your interviews but also what is out there on the market with benchmarking tools yep. like yours and also seeing how does the existing workforce um salary develop or could develop and also how the company develops because if there are new markets and new revenue um, streams like new products okay then why not changing your pay philosophy and say okay we need to adjust overall maybe why because okay the roe of this 1.2 million just for races or even 10 million it's some at some stages i don't know the numbers yep. right so but let's say you it's a big it's a big number um overall but a small number for every employee then why not playing around with this and saying okay what would be the roe of what we could get out of it right and uh, making those calculations um on okay how much revenue could we unlock if we pay fairly because people are maybe um compensated better and then focusing more on the delivery and on the focus but also you will be better in hiring because sometimes you will then have um, a problem of okay when you hire somebody new into the role um in the market you just launch and you don't have the right levels um at some point you just cannot hire anymore or you lose too many people if that is the point you have internally you should review that and say okay let's make an investment let's increase the bands but then also let's increase the budget for the new roles but also for the existing team members and that's usually a big yes. number but it pays off yeah, yeah no 100 percent. so you know a good point on that is you're right right so you need to follow kpis on how the market moving how is it do, do you see trends in like people leaving do you see trends in people receiving offers above their pay grades right and you should give a good finger of the pulse uh and in order to be proactive and not to like reactive and not realize that you should take action after 10 employees have left and one point that you just made is like super important right in in the sense that whenever you're reviewing salary ranges Proactively increasing people in the position is super powerful. So I've had the chance to do that, I said, three or four times in my career. For like one case was, was a critical when we realized the DevOps market was going crazy. We went out, uh, saw that we had more and more offers declined, uh, saw that some of our employees were like, we know I'm bailing more and more uh, offers that seems to be quite high. We went out, did the market survey specifically on DevOps role. And we're like, okay, you're right. I think DevOps roles have overall increased by 8%. So we increase our ranges and we increase everyone proactively, even those that didn't come to us to complain. And you know the power it has when you go to people and be like, hey, yes. Thomas, so we've had a look at, at the DevOps market. It seems that the DevOps market has been increasing fast. We don't want you to be unfairly compensated. You didn't ask for anything, but we're going to increase you at the middle of the year, at, at some point in time, outside of the normal pay, pay review cycles, just to ensure you're fairly compensated. The, the type of power and impact it has on people being like, wow, 
So in fact, salary doesn't have to be a fight between me and my employer. It doesn't have to be an ongoing negotiation fight. I shouldn't have to be like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna negotiate an offer with your competitor in order to get the salary increase. No, it doesn't have to be that way. When you have a company looking out for the best interest of the people, trying to ensure they're fairly compensated, the impact in terms of trust with the company, in terms of retention, in terms of engagement was huge. Right. So 100% agree with what you just said. Thanks. Um, I really like the conversation. So I think we are already um, at a good time. Any final words you want to share? Um, some of the final words, because the topic of the moment, why right, Thomas, is people don't realize that necessarily is like some of the laws that we're seeing in the US with like pushing employers to advertise salary bans on job ads, for example is coming to Europe, right? A, a new directive has been voted in 15th of December by the European government that's going to force within the next few years companies and local government to apply laws that's going to force companies to be more and more transparent about their salary ranges for, and to do so externally, right? So I think the, my, my, some, of, some of the final comments that this is coming and if companies take too long to adjust, it's going to be a nightmare. So yes. I really encourage companies to start structuring their salary compensation philosophy, to start structuring their salary bands, to start getting things into order. They don't have to communicate now. They won't have to communicate in six months from now. But the more time you, you take to get started on this, the more it's going to bite you uh, in the back afterwards. So I encourage companies to start thinking of, hey, if one year from now, and maybe it won't be one year, maybe it'll be two years, but if one year from now I'm being pushed to to share my salary band. Or if one year from now, there's so many of my competitors doing it that my employees are like, wait, why is everyone else sharing their salary bands and we're not doing it? How come, how can I get ready to be in a position to be okay with having to do it, right? How could I be, take, be proactive into structuring my compensation philosophy, structuring my salary bands in order to do that, in order to be ready for that moment? Super interesting. And who else should I bring on the show that you know personally and I don't yet? Ah, it's a pretty good question. So you just invited, you just had an episode with Anna, right? Anna Ott, which yeah. I think is a, is a very, quite an amazing HR leader. You've had, you didn't have on your show uh, Jessica Zwan, right? Which is a ex-VP of People Operation at Whereby and now the COO of Whereby. And she's about to, so she's put a book out there that you can pre-order on Amazon. That's the number one pre-order book in HR category in Amazon at the oh. moment, that's like applying product principles to people management. Jessica is the most, one of the most uh, outstanding um, HR professional of past, HR professional because she's now a COO. And I can't wait to read her book and I think she'd be a fabulous person to interview on your podcast. Nice, do you know her? I do. Can you intro me? I can. Sure, <laughs> love it. <laughs> cool, yeah, then. Um, virtually it was really nice talking to you um very great episode and um we stay in touch and uh, thank you for being my guest no thank you for inviting me thomas it was a, a real pleasure <laughs> <laughs>